gospel this morning is generally called the parable of the unjust servant. Now, if you're not sure what to make of this parable from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, take some comfort because it comes across, I've come across in my study in the commentaries and the different articles I've read, I've come across at least four different interpretations of this parable that ends somewhere in verse 8. The first one was the children of light, Christians, need to act more shrewdly. The second interpretation was Christians should make friends with unrighteous mammon, or to use the King James version of the Bible, filthy lucre. The third interpretation was if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will trust you with true riches? And the fourth interpretation is you cannot serve two masters. Now part of the problem is that the term or the terms that are used like unrighteous mammon and true riches are not clearly stated. They're not made clear. And how that uh, are we to make friends, as it were, with unrighteous mammon? That verse 9 says will welcome us into our eternal homes. But the most vexing question of all is why the rich man was honoured. He was commended for his dishonest, dishonest management. It's here, I think, in the last question that we hear the faint heartbeat of the challenging message on this passage of Scripture. Let me say again, this parable has generated an enormous amount of controversy over the centuries. At first glance, it doesn't appear to have any redeeming features. As we shall see, it's a story about a man who cheats his boss. To make matters worse, after Jesus tells the story, he, in essence, says, you should do the same thing. One man said, it contains as choice a set of rogues as one could meet anywhere. And it's true. The hero of this story is a villain. He's, he's a cheat. He's a thief. And what happens here could happen, could have happened in Melbourne. It could have happened in New York. It could have happened in London. It could have happened in Melton. It's, it's life from a basement view. One man shafts his boss and he seems to get away with it. And that's what this story is all about. Jesus tells a story and then he draws a good lesson from a bad example. The story begins this way. There was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Now, when Jesus said rich, he means extremely rich. This man was a multimillionaire if he lived in the 21st century. He was so rich that he never had to work for himself. He was rich enough to own a large estate and rich enough to hire a man to run his estate for him. The man he hired was called a steward. In today's language, we would use the word manager. In Bible times, the steward was a man of immense power. He had absolute right uh, to hire, to fire. He had the right to set salaries and control all the business affairs of the, the estate. He made the deals. He bought and sold uh, crops and cattle and all sorts of things. And he haggled prices up or he haggled prices down. The steward ran the whole show. 
He made all the decisions. He was answerable only to one man, and that was the owner. And that meant the steward had unlimited power, power to do things wisely, power to do things foolishly. And that's why the number one qualification of a steward was faithfulness. He had to be loyal because it wasn't, if he wasn't, he could cause a lot of damage. And in this story that Jesus tells us, the steward had been accused of squandering his boss's possessions. That meant he was deliberately mismanaging the boss's possessions. So what had this steward done? Well, we really don't know. Perhaps he had been skimming off the top for himself. Perhaps he was underpaying his employees, or maybe he had put some of his bludging mates on the payroll. Perhaps he was gambling money, the manager's money, the, sorry, the, the, the owner's money. We just don't know what he is being accused of, but we know he's been accused of mismanaging the estate. Verse 2 says, So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So the word has got out. And it always does, doesn't it? The word always gets out. You can cheat for just so long before someone else finds out what you're doing. And when it happens, you, you, you almost never figure out how they got caught. But they do. Sooner or later, cheaters, liars, gossipers, they get caught. And that's the whole point. This man has been caught red-handed. This story is not about how he got into trouble, but it's about how he gets out of trouble. Now, the boss is hopping mad. And in verse 2, he plainly says, you can no longer be a steward. He orders him to give an account. And then he says, by the way, you're fired. No second chance. No appeal. You're fired. The purpose of the accounting is simple. The steward must total up the books and clean up all the details so he can hand things over to the next man. The boss stands up, the interview's over, the steward walks out with his head down and he has one more job to do and then he's out of work. But what does he do? He's in a desperate situation because there is no market for unfaithful stewards. Word has gotten around who would hire an unemployed crook. Verse 3 says, Then the steward said to himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. He begins to think about the possibilities Two things come quickly to mind, digging ditches and begging, but neither one fits his job profile. He's too weak to dig and he's too proud to beg, but he still needs to eat. They say that necessity is the mother of invention and this man needs a good idea and the good idea that he gets is the whole reason that Jesus tells this story. The steward invites a very, he invents, sorry, a very simple scheme. <coughs> he still has his job for a moment. He's been fired. 
but the firing has not yet taken effect. Time is short and his situation called for some on-the-spot ingenuity. And in verse 4 he says, I have resolved what to do, that when I, put out, when I am put out of stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So, that last phrase is key here. He is looking for a way to take care of himself once he loses his job. The plan is simplicity in itself. As steward, he has absolute authority uh, in making deals with people who do, who do business with the estate. Uh, by manipulating those prices, he could win friends for himself, friends who would remember him after he lost his job. And so that's what he did. He made two quick deals. The first was with a man who owed the estate 3,000 litres of olive oil. The steward had the man take his bill and halve it to 1,500 litres. And so that was a 50% discount right there on the spot. And the second deal that he does is with a man who owed the, 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 who owed the, the, the owner of the estate 30 tonnes of wheat. And he had him take his bill and rub out 30 tonnes and write down 24 tonnes. And so he, he receives a 20% discount. And what is meant was obvious. These two men suddenly received a discount, one they had not expected, one that they had not deserved. The steward figured that the free discount would make them happy, and he was right about that. The two men didn't know why he did it, but who cares? They took that discount gladly, and suddenly the steward has become their friends. And that brings us to the end of the story in verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. That suggests two themes this morning. First, that the rich man knew what the steward had done. And secondly, the master knew a clever deal when he saw one. But how could the boss approve of this thief who had cheated him time and time again? Because the steward used his opportunity to prepare for his future. That's how. The steward used the opportunity that was before him through the boss, through the firing, to prepare for his future. And he was thinking ahead. He was taking care of tomorrow. And that's why the master praised him. But the question remains, why did Jesus tell this story at all? What possible point could be drawn from this story? And we can see why the parable is controversial. It's a slice of life from the business world, and it's held up for our examination. A thief is caught, thief is confronted, examined, and sacked. But before he's sacked, he takes one last opportunity to feather his own nest. And there's no hint of Christianity anywhere in that. Jesus' own explanation is in the second half of verse 8. For the children of light, or for the children of this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Note those two phrases this morning. The children of this age and the children of light. We could simply say the people of the world and the people of God. In other words, 
there are two groups living according to two separate rules. The people of this world live one way and the people of God live another way. But in some ways, the people of this age are wiser than the people of God. Why? Because they plan for their future. And that's what Jesus is approving of. Not the steward's dishonesty. Not his base self-interest. But the fact that he looked to the future, saw what was coming, and used his opportunities to make a wise plan. Here's a fool who is wiser than the wise. The surprise is that Jesus says unbelievers are better at planning their own future than believers are. They live in this world. They make plans for their own future in this world. We who are people of God live in this world, but we have seen the light of eternity. We know there is another world to come, but we don't make any preparations for it. Let me say that. Let me say that again. Unbelievers who only see one world, but at least they plan for the future that they can see. We see two worlds and live as if the next world doesn't exist. The point of the parable is this. We ought to use our present opportunities to prepare for the world to come. We are wise if we do, and we are foolish if we don't. So, let's have a look at two thoughts. Just in case we missed it, Jesus added three moral uh, or three morals to the story. The first one is found in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Some translators use the phrase or use phrases like dishonest wealth. But basically, all of the phrases that are translated different ways stand for money. And all that money can buy. That's what it stands for. Filthy lucre, unrighteous mammon, dishonest wealth. Basically, all stands for money and what money can buy. This is what Jesus this is Jesus' investment advice. You should use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. That's what the unjust steward did, and that's what you should do. That's what Jesus' advice is. Notice the reason he gives, so that when it's gone. So that what is the it Jesus is talking about? What is the it? Jesus is talking about money and everything money can buy. That's what he's talking about. Money fails. It fails in the end. Five minutes after you are dead, somebody else will have your money. I had to bury my father several years ago and I was the executor of his estate. And the moment his death certificate was issued, the bank owned his money. And the only entity that could demand money from the bank by Commonwealth law, was the funeral home. Five minutes after death, your credit cards will be useless to you. On that day, it won't matter whether you lived in a mansion by, uh, with a swimming pool in the backyard or whether you slept rough at the amphitheatre next to the IGA. It won't matter. Think of it. All you live for, all the accumulation of your wealth of a lifetime, 
everything that you ever dreamed about, every dollar that you ever saved, every investment, all of it will be gone forever. Your wealth, your money will fail you in the end. After the rich man dies, people often say, how much did he leave? I remember I used to know a bloke who used to trawl through the obituaries in the, in, in the town he lived in. And he was looking for uh, someone he knew because in the obituaries, this was in Yorkshire, Susan, because in the obituaries they used to put how much their net worth was. And he said, I'm, I'm worth much more than him. <laughs> he used to trawl through the obituaries and look for, for the net worth of people and he used to say, I'm worth much more than him. But the problem is after a rich man dies or a rich woman dies, people often say, how much did they leave? And the answer is always the same. They left it all. They yeah, left God. it all. The question is not how much did you make. The question is how did you spend what you had while you had it? Did you buy houses? Did you buy land? Did you buy stocks, furniture, new cars, new clothes? Is that all you did with your money? Was that, all, was that the only goal you had in your life? Or did you make friends of God? with your money. Those are the only two choices that Jesus offers. And they are the only two choices we have. The issue is not getting rich versus staying poor. That is not the issue. It's not between the ASX stock market and Jesus. That's not the issue. The issue is how did you use your how did you use the money that you made? The issue is, did you get rich for your own sake or did you use whatever wealth you had to make friends with God? But that's not all that this text says. It says that you should use your money to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal homes. This morning, that's heaven. Jesus is saying that we should use our money to make sure people get to heaven so that they will welcome us into heaven when we get there. Let me ask some questions. Will anyone be glad to see you in heaven? Will anyone hug your neck and say, thank you for making sure that I got here? Will anyone be there because you made friends of God with your money? When you pass through those pearly gates, will there be a standing ovation of people who you helped in this life? Or will all the things you spent your money on be left behind? And all the people you knew be going to another place? Verse 10 says, He or she who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he or she who is unjust in what is least is unjust in what is much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous manner, who will commit to you, or who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in this, or in what is, is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So what is the very little, or the, the very least, Jesus is talking about. Because he says, if you, if, if, if he or she 
who is, who is faithful in what is least or in very little. What is he talking about there? Well, it's the money that we make and the wealth we accumulate in this life. That is what's, what's what he's talking about. To God, everything is the very least. To God, everything is very little. In the light of eternity, everything amounts to just pocket change. Even the person who has billions and billions of dollars has very little as far as God is concerned. To us, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are all unbelievably rich. But to God, it's peanuts. It's the very least. It's how much you have. It's not how much you have this morning, but what you do with what you have that matters to God. That's where the much comes in. That's where the much comes in. The much refers to eternal wealth, not earthly wealth. It refers to eternal wealth. Jesus is saying, if you have messed around and wasted your, your worldly wealth, why should I trust you with the stuff that's really important? Therefore, your future wealth depends on how you use your present wealth. What we have now, we must someday give up. What we have then, we will keep forever. So the big question is, what difference will it make how you spend your money? And it's a good question. What difference will it make how you spend your money? What difference will it make today? What difference will it make tomorrow? What difference will it make in 10,000 years? What we are today is what we shall be in eternity. If God can't trust you now with the trifling stuff called money, how will he ever be able to trust you with the true riches? Everything we have received has been given to us as a trust. The money that we have is a loan to us. We are loaned that. Someday we'll have to give it back and God will give it to somebody else. The question is not how much did God give us. That varies from person to person. Some have more, some have less. But in God's eyes, it's all very little. It's all the very least. But here's where the rubber meets the road this morning. Here's the big and all-important question. What have we done with what God has given us? That's the question that God will ask everyone someday. And we will have to live with that answer for a very, very long time. Guys in the back, and then they God, you're right. Here's the end of the story. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, but either he or she will hate one and love the other, or either he or she will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So this is a fidelity, a test of fidelity, which means uh, a fixed loyalty or uh, an exclusive allegiance. You can have Christ as master or have money as master, but you can't have both. The two masters will never agree, and you must choose whom you will serve. Can I tell you what our problem is? We're spending our money as if we're never going to die. That's right. We're living as if 
there, there is no tomorrow. We're investing as if this world is the final world. And here's the problem. We are blind to reality if we live that way. One day, we're all going to die. And you will put in, be put in a box and you will be wheeled into a church building or a chapel. Someone might be me will say some nice words. There will be a bit of crying and then you will be wheeled out onto a hearse. We will take you to the cemetery, say a few more nice words, have a prayer. We'll either drop you in the hole in the ground and put some dirt over you or it'll be off to the crematorium. Either way, we'll shake hands all around, we'll hug, we'll cry and then we'll go over to your house and have a party. That's it. That's the reality. But some of us think that's never going to happen. No. We're living as if we've never, we're never going to die. But we are. And that ought to make us stop and ask a few sobering questions. What am I living for? What am I working for? What am I investing in? What will I have to show for it in the end? And so friends, I've learned this a long time ago. Don't be afraid to give your money away. You can't keep it anyway. There are two steps that I want to take you through by way of application as I close. First, I want you to go home and think about what I've said. Go back and read the text for yourself. Evaluate my words. Decide for yourself if I've told you the truth this morning or not. Secondly, I want you to do a financial checkup. And to do that, I want you to take a blank piece of paper and draw a line down the middle. Label the left side this world and label the right side eternity. And I want you to study your bank statements for the last 30 days and where and what you have spent your money on. Each purchase or use of your money will belong to either the left side of the column or the right side of the column. How much of your money is in the, in the last month has gone for this world and how much of this money has been invested into eternity? I'm not suggesting that the proportion, what the proportion should be. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I think you should find out where your money is going. Once upon a time, there was a crook who was smart enough to use his opportunities to prepare for his future. Jesus said we should do as much for ourselves. Please pray for me. Pray, please pray for me. Please pray with me. <laughs> Lord, your word is so simple and so clear. We know what it says and what it means. But Lord, sometimes it's so hard to put it into practice. Save us from investing in things which will not last. Help us to live so that in 10,000 years we will have no regrets. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said,